Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Brent Johnson, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, We got to meet in person in Miami. Uh, sitting on George Gammon's panel at the Rebel Capitalist Show, we talked about the history and future of money. And I think today, what we're going to try to get into, general themes at least, uh, are similar. I'm going to look at kind of the history and nature, possibly the future of money, um, its relationship with violence and the state. And then you just mentioned to me, you read my good friend Nick Batia's book, Laird Money. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Sure. And um, for the audience, so Brent is the founder of Santiago Capital, which is a wealth management firm. Uh, he's a prolific thinker in the sphere of capital, finance, money, macro. Um, and I don't, I, I guess I'll let you speak to where you stand on Bitcoin. You're, you're definitely, you just mentioned to me before the show that you're uh, free market leaning, but maybe they, they don't always have the whole picture. So as another part of this conversation today, we're going to go into David Graeber's book, Debt, a little bit, um, which I think makes some, some very interesting counter arguments um, to the Austrian view. So Brent, welcome to the show. Um, I'm not sure where to dive in here. This is a, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. I have a feeling we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot of ground here. I don't know if it's gonna it may, it may jump around a bit, but I know we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it would be helpful if you wanted to start out with a little bit of brief background on yourself. That'd be great, and then we could just jump into Graber's perspective on money. I guess that would be a good place sure. to start, where he talks about um, debt versus barter and how it's evolved over time. Sure. So maybe the best way to set this up is to, you know, I started my career on Wall Street in 99. So, you know, a little over 20 years ago. And I did about a six month training program. And then I came out into quote unquote business in the, you know, winter spring of 2000. And shortly after that, the market crashed. So, you know, I was going through the training program when the technology boom was just, you know, full guns blazing. And I came out thinking I was going to get rich in just, you know, a few months. And uh, then everything kind of went the other way. And so we had a year or so of crisis. 
And then we had the 9-11 event and had another year or so of crisis. Then we had a couple of decent years and then things started to kind of go south again. Then we had the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And then that just started to get better. And then we had the Euro crisis. I don't know if you remember the, you know, the Portugal, Italy, Spain, Greece, they were worried that Southern Europe was all going to go bankrupt. So we had another mm-hmm. crisis. Then we had a couple decent years and then we kind of had started having the repo crisis and some of these other things. And then we have COVID, right? So in the last 20 years, I feel like I've had at least half the time in my career I've been in crisis and the other half of the time it's been okay. And there's been a few good years along the way as well. Um, and so I kind of, that's a long way of saying that, you know, I think potentially if somebody had spent 20 years from like 1980 or the early eighties to two thousands where markets were, not more calm, but just more, not maybe less irrational and less crazy. You know, a 20 year career during that period may be a little different than the 20 year career of the last 20 years. Right. And I, I, I have, and I'll get into the reason why, but I believe that the last 20 years, the education, the real world education, I guess that I got over the last 20 years um, in conjunction with all the reading and the self-education that I started doing about 12 years ago, has kind of prepared me for what I think is going to happen over the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I'm going to say is that a lot of times people say, Oh, Brent thinks he knows this or Brent thinks he knows this. And there, I do not know what's going to happen. Right. I know nobody knows what's going to happen. All of us are using the best of our abilities to speculate on what the future is going to bring. Absolutely. Um, I think I have a reasonable idea of how it's going to play out. Uh, but none of this is guaranteed. So, you know, anything I say, I, you know, I, I always tell people to go do their own research, you know, think for yourself, don't believe it just because I say it and certainly don't believe it just because somebody else says it. Right. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I, I just got kind of rambling no, there, but no, um, that, that's perfect. Uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate the, the context. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you've been raised in the fires of the markets, essentially. Um, yeah. And a lot of that, at least the Austrian view would be that increasing central bank intervention has driven larger and more frequent crises around the world. And we're going through more of it now. Um, That's right. So maybe, and, you know, I think maybe, maybe to kind of further this, give, give me just two or three minutes and I'll, sure. I'll kind of set it up because I think this is going to help people understand my point of view a little bit better as well. People have heard me on other presentations or podcasts. I've, to- I've talked about this kind of uh, this very uh, important meeting that I had in 2007 that kind of really changed my perspective on a lot of things. But even before that in college and even in my first, you know, six or seven years in business, I was kind of one of those guys who I was just kind of smart. I, you know, I, I was, I always had a lot of people around me that were a lot smarter than I was, but I was smart enough that I could, I could remember if I took a class, I could remember what the teacher said and I could memorize things really well. And I could, I could get pretty good grades, you know, not, well, not the valedictorian or anything, but I could just kind of get by, by remembering stuff. And so when I took classes on finance and economics, you know, I, I didn't necessarily learn it all as far as inherent knowledge. I just learned it long enough to get a good grade on the test. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and then when I went through the training program on wall street, whatever the people that trained me told me, I pretty much believed them. You know, I just Mm -hmm. took what they, they said as gospel. And then, uh, you know, I had this meeting in 2007 where I was with these, this, this, uh, this, this young couple who had sold their company and we were trying to uh, convince them to put their money with us to manage. And I brought in all these experts from my firm, all the people that were kind of my idols and the people that I looked up to do and the people that I wanted to become. 
And I thought this is going to be a slam dunk. These people are going to just wow this young couple with their expert expertise and their knowledge. And we get into this meeting and I realize these people don't know anything more than I do. You know, they, they, they've just been saying the same thing all their life. And most people believe them because they don't know any better. Mm. But this young couple, they actually kind of thought for themselves. And they asked a number of very, what I thought, very smart and intelligent questions. Not necessarily even hard questions, just mm -hmm. different questions that were typically asked. And these people couldn't answer them. And it made me realize that they really didn't, they couldn't answer them because they really didn't know. Mm. You know, they were salespeople. They were essentially salespeople. salespeople. Yeah. And, and I left that meeting very uh, disillusioned and discouraged. And I went back to my desk and I literally got out a piece of white paper because they had asked a number of questions about inflation and tax rates and the amount of debt and, you know, all these like, and all these numbers, you know, the entitlements, you know, mm -hmm. huge. At the time they were billions, now it's trillions, but at the time it was, you know, hundreds of billions. And so I, I got out a piece of white paper and I literally did the math longhand just so I could see it. And I did kind of a back of the napkin, uh, back of the napkin analysis on, on the United States, you know, economy and government. And, and it just, it was a very stark reminder that, you know, it, it was yeah. not in good shape. Right. And so that, that, and I literally had the light bulb above the head moment. And that kind of started my period of self-discovery where I went back and I read a bunch of the stuff that I read in college, but this time to actually like understand it. Yeah. And, you know, I went on blog posts and I went to conferences and I read textbooks and economic papers. And, you know, I sought out people who kind of thought like I did. And that, that kind of led me to the, the Austrian school, mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the Austrian school because I thought it actually made sense. A lot of the times when I would take finance classes, you know, in college or even learning the stuff in my first years in business, I could figure it out again long enough to memorize what I needed to do but it didn't really inherently make sense to me. And then when I kind of went to the Austrian school, I kind of figured out, well, the reason it didn't make sense is because it doesn't make sense. It's all right. just this, you know, crazy system that the world has built. Um, and, and the Austrian school, I guess, gave me a foundation for, for how things should be or, mm -hmm. or in, how, how they would be in a free market. Yeah. And so that really helped me kind of understand economics from a fundamental standpoint and money and, currencies and and that was great but then you know you fast forward several years and, and i started to be honest i started to have some problems with the austrian school because mm -hmm. i thought in many ways they were just as dogmatic about their beliefs as the keynesians were about their beliefs right and while i appreciated the austrian school perspective in my opinion the austrian school explains how it would be in a free market right. and i'm a free market guy i'm a capitalist so that, that really speaks to me. But then the reality is we don't live in a free market. Yeah. And very, very, um, only for very short periods of time in history has there ever been a free market. It's, yeah. There's typically some involvement from the state or local power of the government or local warlord, however you mm -hmm. want to define that, that makes it not a free market. And so um, I, I think if you have the Austrian viewpoint of the free market, it may sometimes hamper your ability to act in the market as it actually is. Um, anyway, that all yeah. kind of, and then Bitcoin, Bitcoin's kind of a con, and then, you, then I lived in Silicon, near Silicon Valley and I had all these friends who were in tech. And so Bitcoin kind of enhances all of that stuff and has a technology perspective. So 
I just kind of feel like all of this stuff has kind of gelled together. And now, you know, here we are with the next five years ahead of us. And it's, I, I think all that stuff is going to be on the table. Yeah, no, it's great color um, to your lens on everything. So let me ask you a couple of questions about that. One, I think maybe it'd be useful for us to define, I'll try to define free market and feel free to correct me if you see it differently. Um, I think the Austrians essentially define it as a forum of voluntary exchange where there is no compulsion, no threat of violence, no threat of aggression against property effectively. Um, and this, as I mentioned to you offline before the show, in my mind, my understanding of a pure free market gets a little cloudy in relationship to violence, because violence is something that is inherently centralizing over time. It's a necessary service. You have to actually have protection from violence to have free trade. But the protector government, the monopolist on violence, often becomes um, the entity that demands tribute, you know, charges monopoly prices in terms of taxation, inflation, et cetera. Um, They almost always monopolize the money throughout history, which is a very uh, big problem for the free market. Um, So maybe you could you could chime in on that, how you see the free market and, you know, maybe why we have never really had one. And then if you could talk a bit about the when you became acquainted with Austrian school, were there particular thinkers or books um, that you gravitated towards? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, maybe I'll ask her that, that, that last question first is, um, you know, the, the first place I went, well, there's a guy named Bill Bonner who okay. has a, he, he, I don't know this for sure, but I think that he is probably the, the, the biggest owner of a newsletter writing business in the world. So okay. he, he has, he himself is an author and has written several books. And then he has a number of different, uh, you know, media companies that he owns that puts out newsletters and some of them are geopolitical related. Some of them are finance related. Some of them are gold related. And so I initially read one of his books. Um, it was called empire of debt. I think I read that in 2007. Um, that was before the financial crisis and he was kind of warning about a crisis was coming. And so that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Um, and then start, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole pretty quickly on this stuff. And I was, I was trying, and I kind of like that stuff anyway, kind of, uh, you know, geopolitical conspiracy theory stuff. And yeah. you, you find out that a lot of the conspiracy theory ends up being conspiracy fact. Yeah. But, you know, early on, I was trying not to go too far down that rabbit hole too quickly because I didn't want to get lost down there. Yeah. So I was trying to, I was, <laughs> and so I was also, you know, it wasn't just going to read the news. I was trying to read the other, you know, more mainstream stuff, but even, but it's hard to find anything Austrian school that's mainstream. It's mm. just inherently not mainstream. Absolutely. Um, but I read uh, a couple of books by Rothbard. Um, I went to, you know, the the Mises.org website. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic yeah. for anybody that's for anybody that's trying to learn. And, and my, here's my point: is even if even if you don't like Austrian school of economics, and but you don't know anything about it, you should you should read a lot about it because it's good to know the other other side's arguments, if nothing else. But the Mises.org website at the time, and I think it still is, was a great resource. That's right. Um, for tons of papers and books. And, you know, there was a book called What Has Government Done to Our Money? Yeah. And I read Rothbard. that. And that, that that made a lot of sense. Mm. Um, he wrote a book. Was it Rothbard or Hayek? I don't know. One of them wrote The Mystery of Banking. And that was I thought that was fantastic. 
the mystery of banking was a really good one. Yeah, I'm not sure who wrote that one. I don't know if I read that one. And then, you know, so I, that's the first place I would go. Is if you're interested in Austrian school of economics, or even just another point of view, uh, you know, should go to the Mises.org website. So I think they have a lot of good stuff. And then I had, you know, doing that, and then I started meeting other people and kind of that's, and they started sending me books and, you know, articles and mm -hmm. links to read. And, you know, I read things like, you know, like Jim Rogers, he wasn't necessarily an Austrian, but he was involved in the gold world. And, you know, Jim mm -hmm. Rickards was, I mean, he still is, but he was pretty prolific at the time writing books. And, mm -hmm. you know, several years ago, now my friends, Ron, Ronnie Stouffer wrote a book called uh, Investing for Austrian School um, mm -hmm. Investors. Um, so that, so I read, a, you know, I, I tried to read as much as I could um, really just to kind of get that. And, and I, and I think, I think it's good because I think it does help you understand from a fundamental point of view, how economies work Yes. with, with the exception that now we'll come back to the other part of your question is mm -hmm. that the, the state, the state's involvement, right? Um, there's all, you know, in, for people who aren't familiar with this language, the state is just whoever the local power is. You know, it could be a city government. It could be, yeah. you know, a country. It could be if you're if you're a tribe living out in the woods, whoever the biggest, strongest guy that or girl that you know is yes. kind of running the show. That's that's the state. So there's always some kind of a there's always been some kind of state intervention on some level, and maybe it's a collective agreement that everybody came to. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think in history there has ever been a prolonged period of voluntary exchange, total free market. I, I can't sit here and say that it never existed anywhere, right. um, but that's just typically not how, how history has gone. Um, what's that called? You know, history is the story of the, the conquered and the conquerors, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, for better or worse, you know, people fight over resources and fight over land and fight over money and that's kind of the history of the world. And so yeah. I always kind of, and that's why I, while I, while I'm, uh, I'm very sympathetic to the Austrian school of economics. And I think it's really important to understand have that foundation. Uh, I think something gets lost if you only focus on that. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Agree with you completely. Lots of good points there. Um, well, look, before I forget, sorry, I just thought of something because you asked yeah. me about the, the, the state and, and violence. And I, I think this is something else that's important to talk about because I think if you, if, for somebody who's not versed in all of this and they hear us talking about this, like, what violence are they talking about? You know, I don't, I don't walk out in the street and get beat up every day. Well, <laughs> some, some neighborhoods, you know, might, right. Yeah, but that's, yeah, yeah. it's not the typical, it's not the typical experience. But the point is, is, as long as you play by their rules, you don't, you don't, right? But, right. but you are, you are bound by their rules. And if, if you don't live by their rules, there are various forms and levels of punishment that go along with that. And yes. maybe it starts off pretty benign initially, but it, it, it can eventually land you incarcerated or dead mm -hmm. as a result of not complying, right? And so I kind of joke and laugh about it, but it's actually very serious. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the state makes the rules and the state, to your point earlier, the state demands tribute. And whereas I think in the Austrian school, they talk about how money developed out of the free market and, and you know, you know, through years of barter and exchange, gold was the most marketable commodity and therefore mm. it became the best form of money. And therefore the, that is, that is the best form of money today. And, there's some truth to that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that mm -hmm. doesn't tell the whole story because, you know, typically throughout history, again, 
whoever was in power demanded tribute of some kind, mm -hmm. payment, taxes, mm -hmm. however you want to you know, define that. And basically whatever they said they wanted as tribute to a certain extent became money because then everybody, everybody else knew that they had to pay that tribute. So if they could trade amongst themselves to get that form of money to pay that tribute, that kind of became money, right? right. Now, I think sometimes along the way, that tribute was gold, right? Yeah. So there was, and sometimes along the way it was paper. Sometimes yeah. along the way it was seashells. Sometimes along the way it was, you know, iron or copper or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And so I think throughout history there was, sometimes there was better forms of money than others. Um, and I think despite what the state said was money, gold also operated as money, you mm. know, in the black market or in the private right. market or however you want to. So maybe there was dual forms of money along the way. Um, but the, the point is, is if you got to that end of the year, the end of that season and you had to pay your tribute and you didn't have it, violence was going to come upon you <laughs> right yeah same yeah. ways if you don't if you don't pay your taxes year after year eventually you're going to get that knock on the door right? right and you know what then then you have the choice of pain or not and if you don't then there will be consequences that's, yeah that, absolutely that, that's just the way it is you don't I, have to I, like it but it's the way it is i think it's a great point that we have to to expound the definition of violence that it's not yeah direct overt violence you go outside your door in the states whacking you with a stick i mean it's right. it's your behavior occurs in the shadow of violence right like if you yeah. go and steal from someone or assault someone yeah. or don't pay your taxes the power of the state will be brought against you which to your point may come as initially as a document in the mail and then it may come yeah. as a knock on the door and they may then it may be a whack on the head you know yeah. um yeah, well, it's different in different di different in different societies and different countries, right? There are Definitely. some countries when you walk outside, they're hitting you with a stick, making you go to work. To yes, <laughs> yes, yes. We we yeah. spent a few months in Bali at one point, and there was they have a different kind of government system. They have like a local regional government, and then they have the larger central state government. And the the local regional go government still goes door to door. They go door to door. A couple of guys roll up on their little bikes, you know, smoking cigarettes, looking standoffish and they want you to hand them some money um wow. so it's a lot yeah. it's alive and well in the world <laughs> yeah um and so the other definition the austrians give of the state is that it is the apparatus of coercion and compulsion basically so to have and this is where it gets murky for me because to your point the pure free market has never existed because property has always been um, vulnerable to aggression, I guess. You could always go and physically take someone's property or or just wield violence to demand payment of property. Um, but we that that emerged that so that local um, the threat of violence basically incites the existence of government because what you want then is a someone to hold that power that prevents anyone else from uh, using the power of violence or coercion or compulsion or fraud over you yep. such that you can have peaceful and productive trade to create wealth. So I think my current view of how this happened is that history sort of forms these little economic enclaves, which may be originally in just a, a small geographic territory, right? Where one guy is 
the most violent guy in the room. He's the, the biggest conqueror. He's got a, a few square miles of territory. You know, everyone go on and mind your business, conduct your business freely, but make sure you always pay this guy. But then as, right. sure, as soon as this guy's territory comes into contact with a, another similar guy's territory, they kind of fight it out. And then yeah. whoever wins conquers the whole territory and then it, it just rolls forth. So government, in my current view, is kind of this centralizing monopoly on violence. And But that's where it's like, I can't get my head around how you could have free market pricing in the market for violence because it's a natural monopoly. The guy's always a monopolist, so he's always going to be prone to charge monopoly prices in, form, in the form of taxation, uh, currency monopolization, and inflation even, where it's just, there's always this, this temptation, I guess, to, to siphon wealth off the productive economy that's inherent to all governments throughout all history. And so I think the point in Graeber's book is that, you know, gold did emerge in the free market as money, but the state also influences what the shape of money's evolution because of what it demands in tax. That creates a demand for money that might not be gold, right? You know, it's been barley, it's been right. fish, it's been all these other things. Sure. Um, some governments wised up and actually started to hoard the gold, and then they would make people denominate their transactions in silver or something, uh, even softer currency, for instance, just so they could, you know, kind of control the wealth. So maybe we could jump into one of these examples. Um, I'm looking at just some of the, the stuff from the book here, and he talks about, I guess one thing we could blow out of the water initially is just that people think typically it's barter. Then people figure out, hey, barter's a real pain in the ass. Why don't we use something as money? And then you get money. But that's not what Graeber's, uh, the anthropological record says, frankly. It says yeah. we instead use debt as the medium of exchange in a way IOUs um, yeah. before we get into barter. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Well, and, I, and I think, in, in, and I have, uh, I have to give credit to a friend of mine, uh, Travis, who pointed this book out to me. It was about a year ago. And uh, the funny thing was, is Travis, I don't, I, I don't think he'll care that I say this, but uh, he's actually a client of mine, but he's also a friend of mine. And um, we got into this long debate on Twitter in front of everybody, you know, and not, not many people argue with their clients in a public forum, right? But like, we were really going back and forth on this. And, um, and he, he was arguing um, kind of the Keynesian statist viewpoint, and I was arguing the, the uh, Austrian viewpoint. And he basically said, I get what you're saying. And theoretically that could happen, but it never did something to that effect. Right. And I said, well, I said, well, you know, that's your theory. Maybe, maybe that didn't, but you know, you know, maybe it happened the way I'm saying it too. And he said, but you know, there's no evidence that what you're saying ever actually took place. And he said, read this book. So I, so it was about a year ago. So I went and got the book and, you know, and I, I was kind of looking to read it and kind of denounce it a little bit. Mm. Um, but it was very good. And, and the problem, the problem, not the problem, it turns out to be a knowledge is always good, even if it's painful to receive. Yep. Um, it was really well researched. Right. And he just yep. goes, I mean, if you get the book and you look in the, the notes section, I mean, the, the amount of research he did and the, 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 the historical record that he cites is extremely hard to disagree with. Now, if somebody out there has an equally well cited 
resource or a book or something that they can send me that, you know, says the opposite. I would love to read that as well. Mm -hmm. Right. But you, this, this isn't something the guy just made up. Like he's got the historical record to kind of back him up. And he kind of went through and said, you know, basically, you know, debt and money created at the same time because, you know, at the, at the beginning of, uh, you know, the, the local power would say, you owe me this at this time period. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe they would, maybe the local king or say, maybe he'd give you a piece of land or he would give you some money or give you something to get started. But then you had to pay tribute back to him uh, three months or six months or a year or whatever it was. So the, the money that you got of the, the currency, there was always, it was always an IOU or there was always kind of a, uh, e there was either labor attached to it or money that had to be paid back at the end mm -hmm. of it. And so, and that, that, that is how money developed because mm -hmm. the, again, the, 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 the state power would say, we need, you need to pay us tribute for this. But then the other way of explaining it is that's the way the state got things done. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's say the king, you know, the king of the realm or the power of the realm wants to develop, um, well, first of all, the first thing he wants to do is remain in power, right? So he has to, he has to, to, to get an army. Well, how does he get an army? Well, he says, you're now in the army. And if you're not in the army, then you get put to death, right? Yeah. And if, okay, so now you're in the army. Okay, so now your job in the army is now you're going to go build roads. Okay, so what do you get in exchange for building roads? Well, you get food and you get shelter and you don't get shot in the back, right? Yeah. So, you, you, and so that's how he got the roads built, right? Uh, but then he, maybe he also needed, um, he needed, um, he needed to eat. The king needed to eat, and he wasn't a farmer himself, so he needed somebody to go plant the fields. And so he would, he would give the farmers or the the peasants or whoever they were, you know, the capital, either the tools or the money to go do that. But then they, at the end of the year, they had to sell that grain and pay that tribute for that money back to him. So, right. in other words, the, the 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 money had to, the state had to issue the money before the state could ask for the money, right? Unless it was Unless that state, which very didn't happen very often, but unless that state used free market money and just re accepted payment in free market money, well, then the state had to issue the money in the first place. Right. You know, you know, it's, if 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 seashells were the or or, or or whatever the whatever the denomination of the of the money was, if it didn't just spring up out of the ground then it had to, they had to make it, whether it was mm -hmm. the paper or whether it was copper copper rivets or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it was, it, it came from the state. And that's the way the state got things done. It's the way the state got provisions. It's the way the state developed the territory, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. And if you, you know, and, and, and then because everybody knew that at the, you know, at the end of the year, at the end of the month, whatever, they had to pay this back to the, you know, the tax authority to the king, then that kind of became money amongst themselves as well. So as an example, right. if I'm a farmer and I, you know, I go out and I, you know, plant the ground and I harvest it and then I sell the wheat and I get a certain amount of money, but let's say the king says I owe him, I don't know, 50 pieces of silver at the end of the, at the end of the month. And I've only got 40 <laughs> for selling well, I've got to go get 10 somewhere else. So then maybe I go borrow those from Joe next door. Who's the, who makes shoes or who, you know, is a log cutter or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But because that guy and that guy has money or that guy has silver or whatever the currency is because he's got to pay to the King as well. Right. So 
trade would develop between private individuals mm. of that form of money because both of those people or all of those people knew that they also had to pay the authority money uh, or, or, or tribute or tax or however you want to mm. describe that. And so that Graeber argues that that is typically right. and actually most often how an economy developed, how debt, um, debt was typically part of it and how um, money developed into the system as opposed to just a system of barter. You know, right. he goes through a pretty exhaustive research of saying, you know, the theory that the Austrian school talks about, and I'm not saying this never happened. It probably did happen at some point on some level. It just wasn't a global phenomenon that happened everywhere where, you know, you know, if you had, uh, I use the example, if you had a shoemaker who wanted a steak, he had to go around and find a, 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 somebody who was growing cows that wanted a pair of shoes. Right. Right. And, that's, and everybody knows that that's just extremely inefficient and yeah. just doesn't really. And, and when you think about it, when you stop and think about it, there's no way a whole economy runs on that method. Right. It would be extremely slow and there'd be no, and no trade. Essentially, there would be basically yeah. Yeah, there'd be essentially no trade. Yeah. Um, and so he and furthermore, there's just almost zero anthropological evidence that that ever happened mm-hmm. on any large scale. So. But this is where I like, this is where the, I guess the real world comes into conflict with the Austrian school theory a little bit. Like I'm, again, I'm very sympathetic to the Austrian school idea. If, if, if there was no local power and there was no government and there was no um, state that was saying, this is what you are demanded to pay tribute in, then in a free market, I think it would develop exactly the way the Austrian yeah. school holds, Agreed. right? And, and so I think, and I think the, the Austrian school is a very hopeful and a very beautiful <laughs> way of thinking about things, right? Um, that's a voluntary system is perhaps the most moral, perhaps the most um, likable, enjoyable. No, nobody wants to be forced to do anything, right? The, mo- the most wealth generating too. I the most wealth generating, no. right? Um, <clears throat> And I think when you, when you look around the world, when you look at the, the societies that are the most free, now, again, there's nowhere is absolutely free. Yep. <laughs> Gov- governments right. are inherently intrusive, right? But some governments are more intrusive than others. And I think when you look around the world and you would look throughout history, the governments that are least intrusive have the most growth and have the most, yes. um, um, not just growth, but uh, most wealth and the most uh, happiness and the most uh, mm-hmm. whatever word I'm looking for. The right? standard um, of living. I think, uh, because I think because I think individuals are more creative when they figure it out. I think the free market is more creative than any government yes. can create. Yeah. Um, so you know, I I think there, there there's there's room for both schools of thought, but I think to get married to either one of them, you're you're looking for looking for trouble. Right. You know what this calls to mind um, that even today, government is the biggest buyer in the market effectively. And I think throughout most of history, it makes, it stands to reason that the government would typically, not always to your point, there's been freer societies, right? When America was initially founded, government was not the biggest buyer in the marketplace. We had a lot of free trade. We generated a lot of wealth. 
early Hong Kong, I think was similar, you know, had very low levels of taxation, government intervention, created a lot of wealth. But over time, the state becomes uh, more and more entrenched and more and more of an influence in the marketplace, um, we could say. So I, I think that maybe would be somewhat of Graeber's argument is that government typically, you know, was and is typically one of the biggest buyers in the market and government is inherently non-free market because they are um, a monopolist, as we've said. And yeah. so I agree that the Austrians, they do a great job of laying the, the principles, foundational principles of economic understanding. I would argue they even describe really well the consequences of state intervention. But yeah. I don't know that they've ever, and I don't know that there is a solution, frankly, to not having this natural monopoly on violence emerge in the marketplace. Like so long as we conduct ourselves in physical reality and we have to have physical transfer of goods and services, we need physical security. So it's always going to kind of centralize to one guy. And so the way I see this is that so that road to the monopoly on violence where the two you know competing regions intersect and then one guy conquers the other, that's kind of like premised on looting initially like the guy that's mm -hmm. the the specialist in violence is just looting people directly but as these economic enclaves are established and expand uh i think graber's argument is they move away from iou you know debt-based monies to something like coinage so i guess the state would accept any form right if they're, they're going to loot you for gold you can pay taxes in gold whatever the market has said is money they'll accept as payment but over time, they start to monopolize, um, you know, the money itself and issue coinage. So coinage, in his view, ends up being something to systemize the the payment and collection of taxes. Whereas in the this is one divergence that I'm not sure about. I think the Austrian view is that coinage emerges as a as a private free market certification function. So that instead of needing to weigh and assay the gold in each yeah. transaction, you could just trust the issuer, but right. the state over time monopolizes the issuer. So well, then not only do they monopolize it, but then they they take advantage of it, right? And they start yes. flipping the coins and exactly. di diluting the money, and the other, and it eventually ends in tears, right? Yes, and that's why I think I think the again I think comparing and contrasting the two systems. This is why I think it's important to understand both systems. Um, I think the Austrian school does a great job of laying out the hopeful way things could be. Mm -hmm. And, and they do a great job of laying out where we're going to end up as a result of not doing it that way. Mm -hmm. But they don't necessarily do a good job of explaining the interim. Yes. And I think the Keynesians, for lack of a better word, or the MMTers, or however you want to label them, they don't necessarily do a good job of the fundamentals and they don't necessarily do a good job of explaining where we're going to end up, but they do a very good job of explaining what's actually happening right now. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, at least for me, it's important to kind of have one foot in each camp and not yeah. to not be, not be strictly. I mean, I know which one I, I like better. I like the Austrian school better, Right. but the Austrian school, to, to me, the Austrian school is, is paradise, right? And mm. paradise just isn't realistic. Like, 
the world is often a it's a beautiful place and it's a cool place and a, you know but it but it, 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 it it's a danger it could be a dangerous place and you know what's that saying the power of war is a vacuum like oh, yeah. any, nature you know, of war is a vacuum nature yeah. Na- nature yeah. right. and like you know the the idea that we're all going to just be in this voluntary society i love the idea i love the, and i personally am kind of a anarchist right like i i don't i don't want any i i would like there not to be a government i'd like there to be free exchange and we all just figure it out and you know wild wild west kind of thing but the wild wild west a lot of people die right and a lot of people yeah. don't a lot of people don't want the wild wild west and they like the stability that goes along with a centralized power yeah. and and the certainty that goes along with the centralized power and i think again one of the things that i think that the Austrian school does a good job of, or maybe it's not just the Austrian school, maybe call them the libertarian community or, mm-hmm. or how, however you want to define that is that I think they've done a good job of explaining that even if the guy next door is not coming in and looting your house, and even though you feel safer, there is actually a big, big bad thief out there and it, he happens to sit in the, in the White House, right? Or he yeah. happens to sit in the government building. So right. you're, you're never really safe from these aggressors or these the thieves yeah. um, it's just a matter of you know sometimes they dress a little better and they speak nicer and they right. you know they, they come across with an air of uh, of honorability but but the actions are actually not that much different right it's a little less obvious perhaps a little less for obvious, those yeah. that don't understand um yeah. but that the decrease in obviousness allows it to be yeah. perpetrated at a much larger scale right because right? people yeah. just don't know um, I agree. I don't know you know who? Uh, do you know who Rick Rule is? I do. Yeah. So I love Rick. I've known Rick for a long time, and he's just a great guy, and he's a great thinker. And you know, he's he's very much in the natural resource and the gold space. Um, and so he's invested in countries all over the world, and has been in you know the halls of Congress and the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, right? Mm-hmm. For, yeah, for, yeah. for for business. And he, he loves telling the story about, you know, how, he, how he's been in, in countries with, you know, warlords that are running things. And he's been in the state of California and uh, he's never been robbed as bad as he was in the state, as he was in the state of California <laughs> from, from, the, from, from the state of California. Right. He said, they, they did immensely more damage to me than any, any warlord ever did. So, yeah. Um, anyway, it's just all a matter of They monopolize right? all that beautiful yeah. part of the country down there and they really take yeah. advantage of it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I would, on the MMT Keynesian piece, I do think they're doing a good job, perhaps, of describing what the state apparatus has grown into. Like it's just, this, it's a mess, yeah. frankly. Yeah. But the yeah. MMT, when they start to present this solution of just, printing, you know, inflation and taxation, some type of two levers yeah. you can pull to infinity of moving a market. I totally think that's BS. I mean, um, yeah. I, I think they're trying to put a Band-Aid on this unhealable wound that the Austrians have identified. It's like, so long as you have state intervention, yeah. if we just look at the currency, uh, Mises says that you either have the crack up boom, hyperinflation, or you have a deflationary bust. Once you start manipulating yep. the money, you have one of two outcomes. You can defer it and delay it yep. and keep printing money yep. and do all these things, but it's going to happen at some point. That's so, right. um, yeah, I think that the, you know, like 
a Stephanie Kelton, perhaps, where she yeah. actually thinks we can just print money forever and that makes the market healthy. Like I, I fundamentally reject that thesis. I don't think that makes any well, so sense. I, so, so I do too. And one, one thing I would say though, is I think there's a lot of people out there. And I'll, first of all, I'll say I have not read her book, but I've read a bunch of stuff by her and some of the other people that agree with her. Same. Um, same. And um, so this isn't a criticism of her book. Um, but I would, and this is going to sound a little hypocritical because so I'm going to tell somebody to do it, even though I haven't done it myself. <laughs> I do think it would be a good exercise to read her book or to read, read the stuff that, that, that her and her, her, her like-minded colleagues say, because, and this, this is where I think it's important. Um, I think a lot of people think, a lot of people equate MMT with the further MMT policies. So what I mean by that is in, in MMT, in modern monetary mechanics really, or is really just describing what actually happens. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, yes. she's she is actually 100% right. And He's Warren Mosler, who's kind of the father, I mean, they're basically describing how the system works. Mm-hmm. And, and they're right, it, it is how the system works. So to say that they're wrong or that they're they're off base, I think that they're off base and that this can just be perpetuated forever without right. consequences. I think they're hundred percent off base, but if you want to understand how the system actually works, it's kind of imperative that you, you, you do read some of that stuff. But again, it gets yeah. to the, it gets to the, the current what's happening now versus what, where we're going to end up. Yes. So if you want, if you want to understand where we're at now, you kind of need to understand that. I, and I think the people no. that there, I think there's a lot of people who hear the words MMT, or, 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 or some of this stuff and they automatically just won't read it because they already know the result. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a danger in doing that. I think there's a danger in saying, I know where we're going to end up. So I don't want to read about it. Or I don't want to know about it. I don't need to know about it. I actually think that's wrong. I think you actually do need to know about it Yeah. because, because that, that, that destination that we're going to get to, it might be three months, but it might be 30 years from now. Yep. Right, right, right. You know, anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, 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 no. Great point. And I agree with you that it's accurately describing the mechanics of the system as it is. So it's descriptive, but it, in my mind, it does, it's based on a, on faulty premise of money. You know, it actually, it, I guess takes this Graeber view um, as an absolute almost that the state owns the money, the end. It, yeah. There's no mark. There's no free market force. There's no counter to that at all. Um, so it kind of misidentifies the the fundamentals, and I also think it mischaracterizes something like inflation. It's like you know, it takes this view that inflation is necessary for a healthy economy, the typical Keynesian view, instead yeah. of you know, it, it's clearly theft. No one voluntarily holds an inflationary currency. No one. You'll never find a willing counterparty to that trade. Everyone wants a money that doesn't inflate or, or reliably uh, if it does have to inflate like gold, like it has low and predictable inflation. So it's, it's uh, more resistance to supply manipulation is lower counterparty risk and money yeah. effectively. I don't, I don't so, think we identify that. So, at all. so here, here, here's why I think it gets really interesting because on the one hand, I completely agree with you, but then I, on the other hand, I think you're wrong. <laughs> so, and I think I'm wrong. And I think I'm wrong. And again, I think Graeber's book, I, I think this is why everybody should read Graeber's book because I think it does a good job of kind of pointing this out is because 
it gets back to the, what's the definition of money, mm-hmm. right? Who, who, who defines what money is? Now there's, there, there, there's what you and I, I think if we were left to our own devices, we could probably agree that we should just let the market figure out what money is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you and I would probably agree that we could probably narrow it down to two or three things that would become money that we would agree on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other side, the other side of the argument, and this is Graeber's argument, is what you and I think is a fantasy because it's never actually been that way. Right. And that what's always actually been money is whatever the state said it was. Right. Yeah. And if the state says it's dollars then it's dollars, and if they say it's copper, then it's copper. And if they say it's tulips, then it's tulips. And you can have these fancy theories and funny stories that you tell yourself, but money is whatever the state says it is. And so from that perspective, I think she's saying, listen, we can issue whatever we whatever money we want. Um, and we can, you know, we can use all our power to enforce yeah. its use, including yeah. violence. You know, I right. think it's a very statist view, right? It's the whole, yes. it, 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 MMT is the description of the statist view of money. Yes. And I guess you just have to decide for yourself, which one is, which one, which one you, then, okay, then this is a thing which one you personally like versus which one actually exists. Right. Yeah. So, and I, th- I think, I think that's, that's kind of one of the things where I kind of get off base with a lot of um, either people um, who don't agree with, with, with my point of view of fiat mm-hmm. currency and gold and Bitcoin and some of these other things, because whereas I'm a fan, quote unquote fan of, of individually chosen forms of money, whether it's gold or Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is. Um, I try not to be a fan of any investments because if you're a fan of something, your, your judgment is eternally clouded. Like I I was, I was talking to somebody the other day and um, I grew up in Nebraska and in Nebraska football's a religion. Like everybody just loves the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And when I was growing up for the first 30 years of my life, they were one of the greatest football teams of the the country. They were perennially in the top 10, won a number of national championships. And for the last 20 years, they've just been awful. But every year I'm like, they they are going to win. And it's because I'm biased, right? I'm a fan. But if if you just, if if you look at it objectively, then for the last 10 or 20 years, we've been awful and right. you would never bet on, you would never bet on them and you certainly wouldn't go all in on them. Right. right. Um, and I think sometimes, not that we're talking about investing, but when it comes to investing, I think sometimes people confuse a good investment with what they're a fan of um, just because yep. they like it conceptually. Yes. And anyway, uh, no, I, 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 I another, think- another, another tangent by me. Excellent point, though, because I will admit this in myself, even that my journey into understanding Bitcoin is, you know, clearly the show. What is money? You you ask these fundamental questions that take you deep down the rabbit hole. And somebody was calling me. Yeah, sure. No sweat. You You can't help but if you understand the promise that Bitcoin holds, right? Even if we're just talking about the promise, not not the practicality, although there is a lot of practicality there, you can't help but be a fan of it. You're like, okay, this is the thing that could separate money and state and, you know, create all this additional wealth and freedom that we've talked about. Then you have to evaluate it pragmatically. But by virtue of you even 
being a fan of it, as you said, you have to take, you have to check yourself. You have to take yourself into account. Like how much am I looking at this thing through rose colored glasses versus, um, you know, being purely pragmatic. So I agree with you on that. Here's where I, all right. So give me a second to unravel this, because this is where I think things get really interesting. Agreed, there's never been a free market or a government separate from money, essentially. Uh, we could say it has sort of happened, but it, not, it hasn't persisted over time, historically. Yep. The book that I mentioned a lot that I, I don't know if um, you've read or not, it's called The Sovereign Individual. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, we're, what we end up talking about then is the state has always monopolized money because it could effectively, mm-hmm. right? Money is the most important tool for humans. If you can control that tool, you can control people. And that's yep. essentially what government's trying to do. Totally, totally agree. So to, to argue, I think my counter argument to like a Graber or an MMT perspective that we're the state, we can do whatever we want. My counter argument would be that we've never had money independent of state because the tech has never existed. And this gets into the actual calculus of violence, the logic of violence, which is something the sovereign individual explores in depth. And so uh, an allegory here may have been like in the year 1500, or we'll say late 1400s, you probably wouldn't have bet against the church. You know, the church had been running the show for a long time. (laughs) They had a stranglehold on knowledge, information, printing of books, wealth. Uh, yeah. they, they were running the show. And so to be part of that bureaucracy was the, the way to, to have power in the world effectively. But then, as we know, you know, something seemingly uh, harmless emerges like a printing press, just a, a little piece of tech. Next thing you know, we've increased the, the rate of book production by th- thousands of percentage points, yeah. many orders of magnitude. Church loses its monopoly on knowledge and therefore starts its descent as the dominant institution in the world. Um, and, and the book goes in depth how many technologies like gunpowder have ch- has changed the logic of violence, the stirrup on a horse, uh, little, like, yeah. Yes, little, yeah. little things that you wouldn't even think about. They actually change the way we can project power across space and time. So it changes the way we organize our institutions. And so Bitcoin, the, the theory there, at least, is that Bitcoin is so much more expensive to confiscate, so much more difficult to confiscate versus, you know, gold or someone just taxing your bank account, which is very low cost to confiscate, that it's essentially changing this calculus of violence, pushing us toward away from a status society towards, I guess you could call it an anarcho-capitalist society where the vast, maybe not all exchanges would be vol- purely voluntary. You'd still have violence and whatnot, but the, the, the cost of benefit on violence collapses. So all of a sudden violence is a much less profitable enterprise. And we get into a world characterized by much more voluntary exchange. Um, so yeah, kind of a long-winded counter argument yeah, there, yeah. but I just wanted well, to lay out the Bitcoiner position as I see it. Well, so I think, There's a couple of things I I would say there. And again, I think this is probably where I've been greatly misunderstood along the way is 
typically when I do these podcasts or these shows, I do them as Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital, which is a wealth management firm and which makes investments on behalf of clients. Mm-hmm. Right. And my job in that role is not to be a moralist. My job is not to be, right. you know, a, a social justice warrior. No. My job is to make money. Right. They, they don't hire me for my politics. God knows they don't hire me for my politics. <laughs> they don't hire me for my my social uh, media. They don't hire me for my, you know, personal beliefs. They hire me because they want me to figure out some way to get through the financial yep. chaos or, yep. or uncertainty that's to come. You know, they, they they have other sources to get their you know religion or morals or social beliefs. Right. Right. They haven't sought me out for that. So. There's a difference between what I would personally like to see and what I would personally do versus what I would do on behalf of clients. And I agree that the technology that has been developed with regard to Bitcoin, I don't know if it's revolutionary, but it has certainly, I guess that's probably the best way to say it. I actually don't think the technology is that advanced. It's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a ledger. It's a digital ledger. And, and to me, that is the, the simplicity is its beauty, right? Yes, agreed. So it's not like it's some super complicated thing that nobody in the world can understand. It's actually fairly simple to understand once you take the time to understand it. Now, maybe the cryptography around it and the ability to send that information right. quickly and effortlessly around the world immediately, that's that's kind of the tech. Maybe that's the technological application, mm-hmm. but the or but but the but the the system itself is miraculously simple, right? Yes. And that that and that's its beauty. And so, I think that it's it has great potential and great power. And the fact that Bitcoin went to sixty thousand dollars from being a penny, what twelve years ago, or yep. a tenth of it? What did it yep. start off as? A tenth of a penny uh, or a hundredth of a penny, I don't remember. Below a cent, yeah, I think it was below uh, a penny, four, right? Four tenths of a cent, maybe. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so that in and of itself shows that the market, not the state, but the the real market, and this is this goes back to the the Austrian school, right? Mm-hmm. The market is demanding uh, an alternative to the state-sponsored form of money. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that there was great demand for this because it went from a penny to $60,000. Now, you can argue there's different reasons why it went that high. And some people would say it's the pure market at work. And other people will say it's a speculative mania. Other people will say it's manipulation. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, is it went there, right? Um, And so from that perspective, I think it shows two things. It shows that the private market can provide a solution. You know, you don't have to have sponsored state sponsored money. The, it, yep. it can come from the market. Um, but I think it also showed, I think it is starting to show is maybe a better way to say it. Um, that states don't like competition. Right. And right. so I have, I have been, I don't know, Pillory, does that word pillar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trying to think of a nice way to say it for, for 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 saying that governments would strike back. Yeah, and against Bitcoin and 
against Bitcoin yep. or against crypto, however yep. you want to, digital assets, however you want to define right. that space. It's so funny. Sometimes I'll say crypto. Sometimes I'll say Bitcoin. If I say Bitcoin, somebody will come back and they'll say, <laughs> but that's not crypto. If I say crypto, they'll say, well, that's not Bitcoin. Yeah. I kind of use them entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, my, my point is only that I, this is my opinion, and I might be wrong in this, but my opinion is that many in the the Bitcoin world, especially the Bitcoin maximalists, mm. I think you've had some experience with the Bitcoin maximalists oh, recently. Yeah. Plenty of experience with those guys. <laughs> I think that they have vastly overstated the ability to take on the state. Mm. And I am not saying that it's impossible for Bitcoin to win this battle. It, it, any, I will never say anything is impossible. But the idea that the governments are powerless and can't do anything about it mm. and are helpless against the rise of Bitcoin, I think is just utter fantasy. Mm. Um, because they are very powerful. There is a lot of things they can do. And mm. I think many people who think that this, the, this rise of Bitcoin is inevitable and fiat currencies are going to fall and um, they're all going to be at the mercy of Bitcoin. I don't think they've studied history. I just, mm. this is just typically not how it goes. Um, and I don't think that they have an appreciation to the lengths of which governments will go to remain in power. Right. I mean, wars are fought over these kinds of things. Yeah. You know, really, really, really bad things happen when governments try to stay in power. Yeah. I mean, we don't have time to go through all of them and, you know, we, we could spend the next 20 hours talking about these things. Yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely horrible things that have happened as a result. And so the idea that, in my opinion, the governments are just going to sit by and let this happen without fighting back and without extracting some extreme amount of pain along the way, I think is just silly, um, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I, I think countermeasures agreed completely that yeah. I think that's happening right now. Like there would yeah, be no, no it, talk exactly. of CBDCs no. if there wasn't exactly. Bitcoin, clearly. Totally agree. Um, totally agree. And they're mobilizing. This is, just one of the ways they're, this is just one of the ways they're fighting back. Yeah. And depending on how much of your, or I guess what size tinfoil hat you want to put on, you could argue that there's a lot of other things going on that are in a direct sure. response to the threat sure. of Bitcoin. Um, yeah. And so I, I guess I see that happening. I agree that's going to happen. I've long thought that that is going to be the probably the most dystopian thing we see is whatever the real state countermeasure to Bitcoin is. Yeah, I agree. Could be something like an IMF coin or whatever, you know, one yeah. world currency type thing, which is, you know, of, of biblical proportions bad. Um, but I still, I guess the bet for me on Bitcoin is that or again, back to simplicity, it's just Gresham's law playing out at a geopolitical level. It's like they have to end up holding some of this thing. The longer it succeeds in the market, you're then playing this geopolitical game where you need to save some of the harder money and spend softer monies. So borrow and spend um, currencies. And over time, that dynamic just spirals out of control where you see countries end up fighting over, you know, hash rate and Bitcoin position and whatnot. But in the process of that, what's happening is the currency monopolies are basically being devitalized so that, you know, 
the more inflation you've created, you've created more demand for inflation resistant money. So individuals are adopting it. Corporations are adopting it. Ultimately, states are adopting it. Well, then they're losing their power to confiscate wealth via inflation. And for the U.S., I mean, that was half the U.S. revenue, at least in 2020. You know, we had four trillion direct tax revenues. We printed four trillion. So um, that's a big blow to state power and state revenue. Um, Let me ask you this. So it's kind of a two-pronged question. And we sort of talked about this in Miami. One is, is the state operating in a free market? So like, if you look at things at a geopolitical level, would you define that as a free market? Because it's, it's, you know, it's just might makes right effectively the geopolitical level. That's a good, it's a, it's a very good point. And then the second part of the question, which I asked you in Miami, but I'd love for you to reiterate a bit is if the free market was left to its own devices, what money does it choose? Yeah. So there is both very, it, it, I love both questions. And, and I do think that on the geopolitical level, or the geopolitical level, the global level, the country yeah. level, yeah. It, it is a free market because the reality is, is that those levels, there are no rules. Um, yeah. And the rules that do exist can be rewritten pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love, I, I love and hate this quote at the same time. It was Nixon, not Nixon, sorry, Kissinger said, um, the illegal we do right away, the unconstitutional, that takes a little bit longer. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That guy. Right. And so, and that, and, but that, 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 I mean, he's considered one of the greatest geopolitical yes. and political thinkers in history. Right. But yeah. so that just tells you how, what these people are like, right. The people that play at this level, that, 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 that gives you a sense of their mindset. Yeah. And I don't think he was joking. I think he said it kind of on off the cuff, just kind of to be funny. Right. But I have no, I have no doubt that he meant it. Right. Well, it's and happening so, everywhere right now. You know? Yeah. No. And so, so from that perspective, I do think, I do think uh, that that is about as close to a free market as you get. Um, I'm sorry, I just forgot the second part of the question. Yeah, second one is just if a free market um, was prevailing in the world, oh. and I guess you could answer this at either level. What you know, and this sort of gets into the future of money question. Which yeah. what money is selected on the free yeah. market? Well, so it's, it's my belief that if we had a free market, so there, it's kind of two questions. If on the global level, if, if we had a free market, not just at the government level, but at an individual level mm-hmm. on a global basis, yeah. my guess is that there would be multiple currencies. I think that gold would, I, I personally think gold would be the highest form of money in, mm-hmm. in that situation but i think that there would be multiple forms of money and i think maybe gold would be like go out and go into hiding because it was gresham's law right mm-hmm. maybe it wouldn't be used as money for that reason maybe maybe bitcoin or something like bitcoin some kind of a digital coin mm-hmm. um, would be up there um, what i think for the future of money what, what i think will have i don't think we're going to go back to a gold standard um, my guess is that when the monetary system is either crashed and rebuilt or reset or reset willingly or we reset unwilling, whatever, my guess is that the next iteration will be a state-sponsored digital currency. Mm. And it's possible it's some kind of a 
multi-country coordinated agreed to type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a basket of digital currencies and maybe there's partially backed by oil and gold and some other commodities in order to, you know, but, but I, I don't think I, number one, I don't think it's going to be a gold standard. And number two, I don't think it's going to be a free market money. Mm-hmm. I think it will still be a state sponsored money. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say that in the next iteration now, yeah. maybe in two or three iterations down the road, maybe, maybe we do get to some kind of a individually chosen market-based solution that due to due to the new technology that's available. Right. Yeah. It really, the fulcrum in my mind, it really comes down to this. It really comes down to tech and the logic of violence. Like we're, we're yeah. all, I don't want to say we're all, <clears throat> what is it? The economists call us, um, you know, rational economic actors, uh, homo yeah. economicus kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But over longer time horizons, societies do sort of shift towards the most economically efficient way of being. And so if, who knows what else the digital age is gonna throw off here, but you know, like 3D printing guns, I think is a big game, like levels the game uh, or the the playing field, you might say. this, these various abilities that digital tech give, gives us to be anonymous or separate ourselves from our identity or move money without you know asking anyone's permission, like all of these things are, are counterbalancing to the enforcement of state power over individuals. So I guess it, for me, the big question is well, how far does that go? Well, I think, I think maybe you just touched on something that's kind of important to think about is um, I, to a certain extent, I think the rise of technology is making the the use of black market money easier. Yeah, if that's the right way to say it. Yeah, um, and so perhaps, well, this 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 gets very philosophical and it gets a little bit dark. Perfect. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, <laughs> and I always tell people that I, I swear to God, I'm not like enough. I'm not like this dark, unhappy person, right? I, you know, I, I think it's a beautiful world, and I love to travel and meet. But I just think that we have some tough times ahead of us. You know, yeah. history tells me that we do. And um, you know, I, you know, as, as I mentioned in, in Miami, like I really do think that we're in this fourth turning, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, the and I don't think we're through it yet. Um, yeah. I don't think. I think. Fourth turnings are, you know, times of great pain, not little pain and annoyance and frustration, but just like real, real pain. Yeah. And I think we've had some frustration and angst and annoyance, but I don't think we've had real pain yet. Yeah. Some people have, but just on the on the on the on the complete country or even global level, I don't think we've had it yet. And I think what what often happens before the the spring, you know. The, 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 this reemergence and everything's great is unfortunately the state typically gets stronger. Like yeah. before it, right before it breaks, it gets stronger and it gets darker and it gets meaner, right. you know? And so I actually think, and the, 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 there was another book, you know, I referenced this on my presentation in Miami and um, you know, a friend of mine um, pointed it out to me and I read it and I just think it's great is this, it's called the storm before the storm. And it's about uh, what was going on in Rome um, from like, you know, in the years 100 BC to 60 BC. So it was like over a 40 to 60 year period. Mm-hmm. And it talked about all these problems that they had. And, you know, a lot of the problems that they were going through at that time are the same issues that we're going through now. Right. Um, inequality, um, the rise of inequality, uh, government corruption, 
endless wars, you know, on other yeah. parts of the empire. Um, and a lot of this, the local political issues that they were dealing with are similar to what we are having. You know, the, the, there was these really hard factions that were, you know, one side of the city was voting this faction, the other side of the city was on the other faction. And, you know, it led to violence between the two parties. And, I mean, the, the similarities are just uncanny. And um, the interesting thing about that is that, you know, that was kind of, uh, you know, again, like around the year 100 BC, but, you know, the Roman Empire didn't fall, quote unquote, for another 500 years. Right. And so the, the yeah. point is, is these things just take a really long time to play out. And, and in that book, they hadn't even got, I always, they hadn't even got to the time of the Caesars yet. They call it the time of the Caesars. The time of the Caesars is basically the time of the dictators. Like during this period of when I'm talking, it was still a republic. You know, all this bad stuff was happening, but they still could vote. They still had choice. But then kind of towards the end of this book is when they were now getting into the time of like Julius Caesar and um, some of the some of the other uh, Nero and, you know, some of these other mm. you know, great uh, Pompey, some of these other great, um, you know, dictators, you know, Roman dictators, for lack mm. of a better word. You know, that came after the storm, yeah. of, you know. And yeah. so I kind of feel like we, I feel like we haven't even reached that stage yet. Um, I feel like before we get through to the spring that, and again, this is, this is not what I want to happen, but this is, I yeah. see this happening is, you know, governments just don't typically just back down and give away power. And I, what I fear, what I really fear is that, you know, the, with this proliferation of the digital technology and the crypto and the Bitcoin, it has shown in many ways, I think the government's going to co-opt it and use mm -hmm. it to their advantage, unfortunately, um, not to our advantage, but to their advantage mm -hmm. in order to, to try. And I, I ultimately think it will fail, <clears throat> but it doesn't, but not initially. Right. Yeah. When I say fail, that might be, it might be 20 or 30 years from now before it fails. Yeah. Uh, but I think that intervening time period could be, could be really tough. Um, and I think, you know, for, for, for many places around the world, and I would say this probably started happening, I'd say after the World War II, we probably had 30 years, 20 to 30 years where we were seen as the, the good guy in the world, you mm -hmm. know, wearing the white hat, the force for good, altruistic, you know, da, 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 da. and I'd probably say probably around Vietnam and then even into the 80s is when that kind of started to, yeah. the shine of that kind of started to wear yeah. off. And then I'd say over the last 20 years, you know, I'd say most, not most, but a lot of the world would say that the U.S. isn't the savior. They're the troublemaker, right? They're the yeah. bully on the playground. Yeah. If it wasn't for them going around causing all these problems, there'd be a lot less problems. Right. And again, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view. Um, my fear and what I think could really happen is that while I think that that view from outside the U.S. is still is becoming more prevalent, I think internally to the U.S. and I think that we still try to put ourselves forth as the altruistic force for good, you know, right. the light in the world. And I think when we, when we, you know, when we, you know, when we go into Afghanistan and when we go into, you know, Syria and we go into Libya and, you know, when we, when we, you know, take on China or whatever it is, we try to say it, this is for the greater good. We still try to wear the white hat, right? Yeah. 
And my fear is that before this is all said and done, as we take off the white hat and we just put on the black hat and mm. we say, screw you guys, you know, you don't yeah. like us, tough, tough shit. You yeah. know, we're the biggest, baddest dude on the block. And if you want to come at us, you give yeah. it your best shot. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think that is more likely. And again, I don't want that to happen, Yeah. but I, I think, I think that is more likely than us rolling over and, you know, surrendering our hegemony to a, to another power. Uh, yeah. If history is any indicator, the black hat always gets put on yeah. towards the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think your timeline there is interesting going through the decline of Rome because I think it was Nero. They were committed to a hard money standard for many centuries. And then Nero started debasing the coin again. And that's what really accelerated the collapse of the Roman empire. And then to your point in the U S we had this 20, 30 year period where we had, you know, the, the shining light yeah. of the world, but 1971, yeah. we started aggressively yeah. debasing the currency again. And here we yeah. are. So th these two things yeah. are intimately intertwined. Well, then um, to, you know, to, 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 to further complicate it and, and why I, and we don't need to kind of get into my views on the market, but the, but the, but the, but to further complicate this is I feel like in many ways, the whole world is going through a fourth turning, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not just the US that's in this situation, like Europe's in the same situation, mm -hmm. you know, Japan's in the same situation, you know, much of Africa is still in the same situation. Um, and the, the few parts of the world that aren't in the same fiscal situation, negative fiscal situation that we are, they just don't have, their markets aren't big enough necessarily to, you know, challenge us from an economic perspective or a military perspective. Right. right. And so, you know, I just, I, 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 because everybody's in this situation, it's really hard for somebody else to come along and knock us off. Right. Yeah. If someone else, if, if they had been managing their own affairs much better than we had been, I think this would be, much more likely that the black hat gets put on and then gets knocked off very quickly. Right. 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 Yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like I don't know who's going to knock it off. I, I just really don't. Um, yeah. If again, if I'm not, not necessarily, if I'm looking at it as a dispassionate, just analyst, I, I don't see who does it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, jumping back into this, we've talked a lot about the relationship, between money and violence, the state, how it's evolved over time. Um, you're very well known for your, your market commentary and your, your macro perspectives. So maybe we could just jump into where you see things today. Like, what have you been thinking a lot about? Um, how do you see the macro landscape here in mid 2021? Yeah, so, well, I think that's, to me, the most, it's funny because on the one hand, I'll tell you a quick story. So in college, growing up in, in high school and like early parts of college, I was, you know, I grew up, I had a very all-American, you know, apple pie, baseball existence. I grew up in a little town in Nebraska and, you know, we had the 4th of July parade and everybody hung, you know, flags out mm -hmm. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I grew up with a very, <laughs> with a very uh, positive view of government and, you know, I, in my, I was going to be a Senator someday. I was going to be the great Senator from Nebraska, so to speak. And, you know, so when I was in college, I did an internship in Washington, DC, and I could not have been more excited. It was at a, at a, with a Senator. I could not have been more excited to get there. I was just, you know, this was, this was my way. I was going to 
was going to jumpstart my career in politics. <laughs> and I got there and after about two weeks after being there, I just hated it. I was like, this yeah. is just, oh, I, I don't like the people. They're full of, you know, they're, they're hypocrites. And that, like, I just, I just, it was such an eye. I'm so glad I did that internship. Otherwise I probably would have moved there after college and, you know, been stuck yeah. or something. Anyway, um, I, that's a long way of saying that like, I've always kind of been fascinated with politics and I'm interested in politics, but I hate politicians. And I just, <laughs> on the one hand, I just, you know, I just, they, they drive me crazy. Uh, but it's, but it's endlessly interesting. And, um, it has great effect on my work that I do. Like you, mm. you can't ignore politics. If you're, if you're going to be in, unless you're a really long-term investor, like really long-term and you don't care about any market fluctuations at all. You have to pay attention to what's going on in politics because again, we don't live in a free market and the, the politics has a direct influence on what the markets are going to do. Yeah. And so I, I think it's been pretty interesting to see um, some of the things that have happened since, since Biden got elected. Um, now I'll tell you that in 2016, I thought Trump was going to win I told people ahead of time that he was oh, going to wow. win and he won. I didn't vote for him and I, w I would never vote for the guy, but <laughs> I thought he, and I, and I thought he was going to win it again in 2020. Yeah. Um, I, 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 and I, to be honest, I was surprised he didn't win. Um, um, and so it, it, it's it, on the one hand, it's interesting what's happened since then, because I think the one, whatever you think of Trump, I think the one thing that I think most people will agree on, is that he did a good job of pointing out that perhaps all of our trade deals and our relationship with China over the previous eight to 10 or 20 years, however you want to measure that, mm -hmm. was perhaps not in our best interest or was mm -hmm. perhaps not done in a way that was the best thing for the United States. <clears throat> and, and, he, and he did it, and I think he did it in a brilliant way. And what I mean by that is he did it in a way that wasn't offensive to China. In other words, he, well, ultimately they were offended, but he, I, I, he did a very good job. He would say things like, now, I don't blame Z for this. If I was in Z's shoes, I would have done the exact same thing he did. Mm -hmm. You know, I blame our previous politicians. I, I, I blame our business leaders who agreed to these deals. And, and he did it in a way that, that it actually made sense. People were like, yeah, you know what? He, he's kind of got a point there. Even the people that didn't like Trump were kind of like, he's, he's kind of got a point, you know? <laughs> and so... Um, I thought that even if he didn't win, I thought that he had raised that level of awareness to a point that even if the Democrats wanted to go back to how it was before, they wouldn't be able to. Mm -hmm. And that's largely what's happened. So, so, so Biden won and, um, you know, he, he brought in this team um, and, you know, the, 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 the team that he brought in is kind of China hawks, for lack of a better word. And, and they have they have remained fairly tough on China and the interesting and, and had Trump won, I think Trump would have been tougher on China on a personal level and on a country to country level. But what Trump did not have the ability to do is he, he did not have any ability to deescalate a situation. He only knew charge forward, right? Right. And he had no ability to build He had no ability to build a consensus. What Biden has been able to do and with Blinken, the secretary of state, He's been able to build a consensus. And so since in just what's he been in office for six months, seven months, um, you know, there's been several countries that have kind of signed up, not, not in an official, you know, agreement, but kind of in partnership with the U S to kind of 
start to push back against China. Um, you know, Europe signed up, uh, UK signed up, Australia signed up, Japan signed up. And so, you know, Biden has been able to build a coalition to kind of push back on China mm-hmm. a little. Like Europe, Europe backed out on their China-Europe uh, trade deal. Um, Australia, you know, has had some um, trouble with China over some trade and, and they've kind of sided with the U.S. And so I don't think that would have happened under Trump, right? Right. And so I think it's pretty interesting to kind of see that start to play out. And, and the reason that's important is because a, if, if I think for the, for the global, sorry, what's it for there to be global calm in the market, you kind of need there to be global calm between the U S and China yeah. and the U S U S dollar and the Chinese yuan exchange rate is one of the most important ratios in all of global finance. And, you know, for the most part, the the Chinese yuan has been strengthening over the last six months. Um, But, you know, the U.S. is kind of they they still rely on dollars a lot for 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 trade Mm -hmm. and for and for for their for the growth of their economy. And so, you know, there's kind of this mutual symbiotic relationship between the U.S. and China. But, you know, I don't think it's going to go as easy for them as maybe they initially thought when, um, when, um, when Biden got elected. I think they thought maybe it would go back to the way it was under Obama. Mm. And so I think that's pretty interesting. And then the other thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, I'm, I'm, everybody knows I'm pretty outspoken on where I think the dollar is headed. And I think for a number of reasons that in the years ahead, the dollar is going to get much stronger, much to many people's surprise. Mm. Um, now, that hasn't been the case for the last 12 months. Um, and in fact, the dollar's dropped about nine or 10% from where it was 15 months ago. But what's interesting in addition to that is that it hasn't really dropped over the last six months or the right. seven months. Um, but, it's kind of at the same level it was back in November, December. And that's despite, you know, Biden getting in, which I think rightly or wrongly is viewed as a Democrat is more, isn't as fiscally conservative. Now, I personally think it's doesn't make any difference, but kind of the common yeah. perception is that the, the, the Democrats would spend more. Um, and then they got, uh, uh, yeah, sorry. Sorry. I just, could you perhaps summarize your dollar view? Uh, I know you're, you're famous for it, but, um, just the the two minute summary for the audience, please. Sure. So, so my view is that the, the common wisdom that the money printer go burr and that the U S is going to print a lot of money. And as a result, the dollar is going to lose its value. My, my opinion is that is wrong. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I think that is wrong is that, fiat currencies trade relative to each other mm-hmm. and the rest of the world is in the same situation that we are and they are i believe they are going to have to print their currency as well they're going to have to do a number of these mmt style policies in order to um you know kind of try to get their economies out of, out of, out of uh, out of the, the depths and so i think on a relative basis for a number of reasons i think the u.s on a relative basis is better off than many other places around the world. So the dollar is the best of the worst. The, the dollar is the best of the worst. And not only that is the, the, the world is on a US dollar standard. We used mm-hmm. to be on a gold standard right. and it is now on a US dollar standard. Again, whether you like it or not, it's kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is about what is, not about what we would like to have. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is to operate mm-hmm. on the global stage, dollars are needed. And the rest of the world has borrowed there's as much global debt denominated in dollars outside the United States as there is inside the United States. Right. And so 
you know, the rest of the world needs dollars just to service their debt. And then at the end of the day, without, you know, going into too much detail, but we've talked about the monopoly of violence. I mean, the U.S. military enforces the use of the dollar as the world reserve currency. So for a number of reasons, I don't think the dollar's going to zero. I think it's going to go much higher before it goes uh, lower. Now, that, that's very much out of favor right now, and I've been wrong on that for the last year. Um, but what I find interesting is that all the arguments that are given against the dollar, they actually exist for the other countries as well. Mm. And if you look at the last six or seven months, you know, Democrat got into the White House, and then we got an all-Democrat Congress. We had another massive stimulus plan. We've been told there's going to be an infrastructure plan. There'll probably be another stimulus plan. So every, you know, the point is, is that, that despite all of this negative news for the dollar, it hasn't gone down. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's basically in the same band that it's been in for five years. Mm -hmm. And so I, I find that that's pretty interesting. And so I think the fact that it hasn't continued to go down despite all of these very negative, quote unquote, headline things for the dollar. And now we're getting into this stage coming back to the politics where I think, you know, we're getting into this, um, hopefully not too confrontational, but potentially confrontational thing with China. Um, you know, I, I think that there's going to be more uncertainty and more chaos. I don't know if chaos is the right. It certainly has the potential to be chaos, mm. but certainly high, I, I think we'll have higher volatility over the next 18 months than we've had for the last 18 months or the last mm. 15 months, perhaps is the right way to say it. Mm. And, um, and so I, I think the politics that are playing out all out right now is really interesting, um, not just in the U.S. because you know it's not going to be that long when we're going to have midterm elections. Was that another year, 15, 18 months away? Yeah. Um, so that's going to start heating up. But then it's not just in the U.S. either. It's like you know Germany um, has big elections that are coming up. A lot of Europe has elections that are coming up, and you know things aren't rosy in, in Europe at all. Um, you know people talk about how the Fed. Um, is buying so many bonds and essentially monetizing the debt. You know, I think the, the, the numbers that you quoted earlier, I think, are correct. Mm. Um, but what a lot of people forget is, so if you look at all the treasuries that the Fed has bought, I think the Fed owns 25, 26% of all treasuries that have been issued, mm. which is a huge number. Mm -hmm. um, except when you look at Europe, they, they've done 45%. Right. So last year alone, they, they monetized, last year, Europe, the European Central Bank monetized 85% of all EU sovereign issuance. And this right. year on they're on pace to do over hundred percent. Wow. So, you know, things aren't, things aren't great in Europe either. Yeah, and Japan and, is uh, 75 or 80%. Well, I, oh, I think, I, oh, I think they're in the forties, but I think they're doing oh. like 75% of current issuance gotcha. or something like that. So it's, <clears throat> so it, I, I got to look that up, but, but then yeah. the point is, is the numbers are high, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, Everybody's monetizing the debt. It's just a matter of how many steps, you know, is, is it direct? It's not necessarily direct. There's one or two steps they go through, but essentially, you know, all major countries are, are, are having to do that in one form or another. And, and because it's a relative game, um, I, I think, I think what happened. Uh, so again, my, my, my thesis on the dollar is, is what I explained earlier, but then in conjunction with all of this debt that's been issued, I think, debt is going to have consequences. Now it hasn't for 30 years, 40 years. We've just borrowed and borrowed and borrowed. And yes. you know, we've had to, the economies that continued to grow and grow. Then they, they crash for a year and then they grow again because more is borrowed. 
I, I think that this eventually is going to have severe consequences. And when that debt crisis starts, I think it will become a sovereign debt crisis and a currency crisis. And I think that is what will lead to the dollar getting stronger. Right. Um, and so what I think happened with COVID, I think because COVID was not a regional thing. Um, and not even, not even, it wasn't country specific and it wasn't even regional specific, but it was global. It was such a global thing that it forced, for lack of a better word, everybody to kind of work together to kind of get through it. And when I say everybody, I mean all the different countries kind of mm -hmm. coordinated efforts. Um, whereas I think if it was just a regional thing, I'm not sure if that coordination and that cooperation would, would have happened. And I think going forward, I'm not sure. I think, I think we're, we've had this 30 year period of globalization where cooperation was the norm, but I think that pendulum has swung and I think we're now swinging back the other way, you know, this fourth turning where, where that globalization is breaking and I think mm -hmm. it's swinging back the other way. And so I'm not sure we're going to see that same level of cooperation amongst countries going forward. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that we will have this peace, love and harmony amongst all actors that we've had for a long time. Yeah. Again, I, I, I hope I'm wrong on all of this stuff. I really do. Um, but I just, I, I, I just think that I, I think these things take a long time to play out. Mm -hmm. And I think once, once the battleship is turned, it's really hard to turn. Yeah. And I think the globalization battleship was going that way for a long time, but I think that ship has turned. Yeah. I, I think it's headed, I think it's headed the other way for a while. Yeah. There, there's um, kind of a confluence of forces here where, you typically see the middle class getting eroded before there's a major structural yeah. change at the society level. But we have a, a collapsing middle class in the U.S., but a burgeoning middle class in you know Asia area. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how that'll play out. I had Jeff Booth on once, and one of his um, – I forget who told him this. It was one of his friends, I believe. He said that currency wars – lead to trade wars, lead to real wars. Yeah. Clearly, we're heavily engaged in the currency war. The trade war started to pick up a bit under in the Trump yeah. presidency. Where do you see, do you see threat of real warfare um, in 2021 yeah. or beyond? Is it US China or where do you see the lines being drawn? So, God, I hope I'm wrong. I really yeah, do. I, and, yes, you know, agreed. my son is just kind of becoming a teenager and God, the last thing I want is five or six years from now for there to be a war. I yeah. mean, it just it kills me to even think about it. Yeah. But um, I think that that's probably likely at some point, you know, and hopefully it will be short and fast and regionally based and not some <laughs> global calamity. But, you know, the, the lines have a little bit been drawn. Um, I do, th I do tend to agree with that, you know, you know, you know, economic war, the trade war, the military war, um, you know, and again, um, I think that it's, I think that the U.S. as the hegemon will do everything in its power to keep it. And I think China views their quote unquote manifest destiny, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. is to become the next global power and mm -hmm. to eventually, um, secede the United States. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps they won't admit that and perhaps perhaps they don't think that happens for 50 or 60 years, but I think it would be 
if some, if I were to speak to a group of Chinese and they were to tell me that that is not their goal, I, I would find that rather surprising. Right. Um, um, perhaps in polite company, they would say that's not their goal, but behind the scenes, I'm, I, I would, I would be really surprised if that wasn't their goal. Um, and so I think that inherently you're going to have a conflict, you know, eventually the number two guy wants to be the guy, right? right. It's just, that's just yes. kind of the way things go. Darwinian and reality. The oh. Darwinian reality, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I hope there's a way that we can figure out to avoid it. But my guess is that there will, will be some of that involved. Yeah. Um, I think, and, th- and this is kind of why I, I, I don't think that there's this big, I don't know, theme is the right way to say it. But I, I, I find that there's this big belief that, that China and Russia are in partnership against the United States. Mm. And I actually don't think that that's correct. Mm. Um, I think, or I don't think it will be correct. I'm not saying that they don't partner on some deals and I'm not saying that they don't use each other, you know, to help each other from, you know, because again, I think they would each like to get out from underneath the thumb of the dollar or, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the U S is the global bully, but I don't think that they're going to have this grand partnership uh, from an economic and certainly not from a military perspective. Uh, I, I, I just don't see that happening. The reality is, is that Russia has never gone to war with the United States In every major war, Russia and the United States have been allies. Yeah. And it actually it actually makes more sense for the United States and Russia to be allies than for Russia and China to be allies. Mm. Um, I think that Putin and Xi are probably the two biggest strong men of the last 80 years and maybe two of the top five of the last 100 years. Um, mm. I mean, Putin has enormous power and, yeah. and Xi, Xi as well, right? Um, and they're neighbors. And, you know, I don't, the, the last thing I think that Putin wants is for China to become the next hegemon and for them to still be, you know, not. Yeah. Is, is that why you, you know, think the U.S. is more likely to align itself with Russia than with China just because of that? Part, that they share a continent, partly, essentially? Part, partly. Yeah. yeah. Partly. And then, um, you know, and, and so I, I, I but I, I think it's very possible that Putin is whispering in Z's ears telling him, you know, this is your time. I think, you know, <laughs> you, you should really make a move. I, I think you could really take on the U.S. and then and then let that happen. And then, you know, Putin can kind of sit back and pick up the pieces. Yeah. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all if something like that was going on. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, you know, I think the, again, the, the common wisdom, I think, is that the ascendancy of China is, is the expected reality. And that yeah. they will be the next global power, and I'm I'm not sure that's the case. I, right. I I don't think that China is as strong internally as they project to the rest of the world. Right. I think they have a lot more problems internally that they would they they would like to admit. Yeah. Um, I think it's inc- the the progress that they've made militarily and economically is over the last forty years. It's incredible. Yeah. And I I am in no way dismissing it. Yeah. But the idea that they could take on the U.S. in a war right now, I think, is is a little bit is a little bit wrong. Um, and, and people say, well, you know, Brent, you're overconfident. And it's not that I'm over. First of all, I'm not, a, I, I don't want the, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the U S should be the global hegemon and should, you know, take over the world. I'm just saying you can, you should never be overconfident. But what I find funny is when people say that Brent, you're overconfident in what the U S can, 
can um, can achieve militarily. And I guess my point back to them is, hold on a second. The U.S. is far and away the biggest and greatest military power in the history of the world. I mean, and it's really not even close. Again, yeah. I don't necessarily like it, but it, it just is. Yeah. And but you're telling me that the U.S. But then uh, people tell me the U.S. can't even win a war. We, we can't. We can't even win in Iraq. We can't win in Afghanistan. We can't win in Syria. And I'm sitting there saying, what makes you think we wanted to win in those places? Right. When you win, you have to come home. We, we don't no. want to come home. No. You know. Um, and so the idea that the idea that I'm the one that's overconfident rather than the upstarts are going to knock off again, the black hat Yeah. to me, that's who's overconfident. Now, again, I, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think I get labeled as like an, an American exceptionalist. I think that we're so mm -hmm. much better than everywhere else and we're so much smarter and nothing can, and, and that, that's not the case at all. Um, I actually think that we've made a number of mistakes along the way. And mm -hmm. I think that those mistakes are going to lead to our eventual demise, for lack of a better word. But yeah. I think there's stages that we have to go through to get there. Yeah. And I think, I, I just don't think we're at that end stage yet. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, so maybe, um, I, see, maybe Japan had a similar perception about it in the 80s yeah. as China does today, roughly. Yeah. That they're just, you know, up and coming, going to yeah. take over the world really quick-like. Um, I do want to throw in this topic though. So how do you see gold playing into all of this? Um, I also had Dominic Frisbee on, who's a, a monetary historian, and he was making the case that he thinks, you know, China is the, not only the largest producer of gold, but also the largest buyer of gold over the past several years. Yeah. And they don't, these are not public figures, but when he was kind of doing some back of the envelope calculation, he thought China had more like 14,000 tons of gold. Whereas yeah. here in the US, I think our official numbers around 9,000, but yeah. we haven't had an audit of Fort Knox yeah. in 50 years. And there's a lot of yeah. concern around that. So do you think that is a major factor here that if China, I guess, first of all, do you agree with that at all that maybe they've accumulated more gold than they've let on? And if so, would they use that as a, you know, a, a, a lever effectively to try and insert yeah. their digital yuan or whatever currency as the new yeah. global reserve currency? So this is a great topic. I mean, I could talk about this topic for hours. Um, so I've, I've thought a lot about this and I've, I've done a lot of research on this and I, I don't claim to have the answers, but I'll tell you what I think. Um, so first of all, I think, um, with, with regard to gold, just gold itself. Uh, I think gold is going to go much higher in the years ahead. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen tomorrow. I actually think it's possible. We, we've, we've just seen the high for gold for the year in the last month. Now, again, if I'm wrong on that, that's totally fine. I'm not telling you that so that everybody goes out and sells their gold. Keep your gold. I'm just saying it might not pay off this year. Um, um, and so if I'm wrong on that and gold goes higher, that's fine. Um, uh, but with regard to the U.S. and gold and China and gold, I, I think all governments hold gold or the ones that do hold gold as an insurance policy. I think they know that despite their state sponsored money, that the market free market has over the centuries chosen gold as money. Mm -hmm. So that is one form of insurance that they hold should the belief in their fiat currencies fail. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and for someone like China, I think having gold gives them a seat at the table 
for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. if, if and when this whole thing gets reset, having gold, I think Jim Rickard said it this way, and I, if, it, if somebody, but whoever said it, I, I do agree with this, is that it gives them a seat at the table when the next system is set up. Right. Because if they don't like whatever system is being set up, they'll say, fine, I'll just use my gold. And, right. you know, gold is, you know, in many ways still the ultimate form of payment. Um, now, maybe other things will be developed over time as well. But, you know, as of right now, I think that's why they hold it. Um, so I'm a big fan of gold, and I think everybody should own gold in their portfolio for those reasons. Now, with regard to how much does the U.S. have and what does China have, it would not surprise me to learn that China has these 14,000 tons of gold. I think they have it on their, like, three officially yeah. or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And I think uh, the U.S. officially is, like, nine. You know, and I've, I've said this several times, and so this isn't the first time I've said this, but I've said several times that I think the U.S. has a lot more gold than, than we say we do as well. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's in Fort Knox. I don't know if it's somewhere else, but I, my guess is that we have a lot more gold than we've ever, ever said we, we, we have. What's and the, part what's of the reason... The, it, sorry to interrupt, but like, why, yeah. what, what's the deal there? Are governments are just well, incentivized to hide their holdings? Well, I think... Well, I think no, I think it's exactly, I think it's actually the opposite. I think, you know, if you hold something, you, it's like, what, why do they have uh, Julian Assange in prison? Because he's dangerous. So mm -hmm. they're holding him in a cell, right? Right. The reason they hold gold is because gold is dangerous. Gold is dangerous <laughs> to their existence, right? Yeah, they they yeah. don't, if gold is in the hands of the, the free market and the, the right. citizens, they can use that against their fiat money laws, right? Or yeah. Their, their legal tender laws. Um, and so they want to control them. And, yeah. you know, and I think the central banks and the U.S. in particular has done a great job of, quote unquote, demonetizing gold over the last 50 years, right? Yeah. They've worked tirelessly to get it out of the system. Yeah. And I think one of the ways they do that is they, they get a hold of it. And it, it, it kind of serves two purposes. One, it gives them the insurance policy. And two, it gives them control of it. So um, you know, and again, this is pure speculation on my point. I have no research that says we have more than that, but, but I, I actually think we probably do have more than that. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I have actually, I've actually got a question for you. Okay. Um, please. So if you don't mind, because <laughs> I, I, I've listened, I'm not, I'm not an expert on all your views. I've heard you speak a number of times and interviews and presentations, and I know that, uh, you are. I guess I, is it fair to say you're libertarian leaning? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've adopted this. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to put a label on you, but that's, no, no, no. I, I appreciate I you asking. Um, and the, you know, labels, it's funny. I'm kind of a, in general, don't believe in labels that much. I mean, I know we yeah, don't no, use know. them, but I'm yeah. trying to be yeah. more of a, a thinker and an inquirer always, you know, like was Socrates, the only thing I know is I know nothing at all, as you said at the beginning yeah, yeah. of the show. The label I put on it is Freedom Maximalist. I think it would be a blend of anarcho-capitalist and libertarian. The one thing I don't see eye to eye with the libertarians on yet, and I'm, I'm reading Rothbard right now, a lot of his work and trying to get my head around it, is this whole axiom of non-aggression. I mean, I just don't think, to your point earlier, it's not what we see in the real world. It's like if property yeah. can be aggressed on, it is aggressed on. You're never going to get people yeah. to adopt this universal morality that they won't do it. The best thing you yeah. can do is make property as unaggressible as possible. So, and that's what, that's why I have such a great hope for Bitcoin. I think it's, yeah. pro, it's a property right 
that's independent of the monopoly on violence. And it's really hard to take from someone. If you custody it properly, it's really hard to steal. So I, yes, sorry, long-winded answer. Well, no, I say so freedom maximalist. Well, that kind of goes, you kind of started to touch on the question I had because um, I guess my question to you is, are, I, I, I know you have positive feelings toward Bitcoin. I'm, not, I'm going to try not to put a label on this, but <laughs> I know that you, you see great potential in Bitcoin. Yes. Um, so I guess my question to you is, do you think that that potential is actually going to be realized? Or do you think that it's not going to be realized, but because you think it is such a willing project, you're willing to, it, it, in other words, it's something worth failing for or fighting for. Is that the right way to say it? Well, definitely, as with all great revolutions in human history, you know, you need a big why. And Bitcoin yeah. definitely has a very big why. It's like to end this tyranny yeah. of central banking or, or monopolization of money. But I wouldn't just, you know, I hold basically all of my savings in Bitcoin. And it's not because uh, I'm hopeful that it will succeed. I mean, I think it has a very, from a very pragmatic standpoint, uh, it's designed to do one thing. It's, it's money wrapped in military-grade encryption designed to survive. So it's, you know, create a new block every 10 minutes, hard cap of 21 million, survive. And to you said, as you said earlier, it's that's the beauty of it almost is this elegant simplicity it has yeah. that it's stripped down. There's no real attack surface on it. It's already peaked above a trillion dollar market cap. Yeah. It's the most secure computing network in human history. And I think that very practically, it's the best risk adjusted return opportunity in the world. Um, and the, the hundred trillion dollar question, if you will, is how do you stop it? How do you take it out? And I haven't been able, I've been looking for this, the answer to that question for five years, almost exclusively, like always trying to, you know, where am I wrong? Where yeah. am I wrong? I haven't heard a good counter argument formulated. I mean, the best, the, the known unknown is the state response, which we've explored sure. thoroughly today. Yeah. They can do lots of things to slow it down, you know, but there's no way to turn it off, like to stop the network completely. So that leaves unknown unknowns. So it's like the only thing that anyone has conceived of, if you want to use that word, is a black swan event of some kind. So there's a global EMP yeah. or some technological black swan we can't foresee that takes it out. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, Bitcoin's optimized to survive. So long as it continues to survive, just doing what it's been doing flawlessly for 12 years, it continues to eat monetary premium, right? Especially against this macro backdrop of more inflation, more taxation. You're creating more demand for inflation resistance and tax avoidance, yep. not evasion, avoidance. Yep. Um, yep. And so I see that similar dynamic playing out with the church, right? When the printing press was invented, first the church wrote it off, just like they wrote off Bitcoin. It was a joke. Don't need to worry about it. Whoop-de-doo. Then they see it threatening their monopoly on knowledge. They start to crack down on it. But when they cracked down on it, it actually drove the proliferation of the printing press. Like people yep. were printing books on how to create printing presses and it just proliferated throughout the world. The church collapsed. So I see that 
a similar dynamic playing out where gov as government tries to tighten its grip on people, more coercion, more compulsion, it's going to push people into, it's like a hydraulic press pushing people into inflation resistant money, right? Just as a means of survival. Yeah. And so I just see it eating market cap um, in that way. Now I understand this is radical. I understand we've never had anything like it. And I guess below all of this is my, my bigger thesis on the digital age. I just think the digital age is radically transformative. It's going to, yeah. everything we think we know today is going to probably going to be out the window in 50 to a hundred years. And I think Bitcoin is yeah. just kind of the tip of the spear on that. Um, I would love to ask you one more question. I know we're right up against time. Sure. Absolutely. No worries. So you make the great point that governments need to lock up that which is dangerous, whether you're Julian Assange or your gold. So by extension, should, I mean, I guess you could probably argue that Bitcoin's already a little bit dangerous, but should it continue to grow and become you know, call it an existential threat to central bank monopolies. Do you think then governments will strive to, you know, quote unquote, lock up Bitcoin? And if so, what does that look like? Yes, the short answer is yes. And, um, you know, I think largely, you know, I don't, again, this is pure speculation, but I don't have any evidence of this. And, and I, I am not completely convinced it wasn't a government-sponsored project to begin with. Yep. I know there's been a lot of people that said, there, no, 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 that's not the case. And maybe maybe it's not, but I'm not, uh, I, I would never say that's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, um, perhaps it's the biggest beta test in history. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, or maybe, maybe the most successful beta test in history. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I think that... So initially, it was going to be a currency, and a, and and, and, and or, or a way of uh, an improvement upon fiat currency, right? And it had both a store value component and a currency component, payment component. Um, I think it's fair to say over the last couple of years, it's gone from being a payment component to a store value. The, the store value has been the greater argument for its existence and its ownership. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think, and I think while that's, and so as a result, then people have said it's not a threat to the dollar and to other currencies because it's just going to be a form of collateral. And I think there's some truth to that. That's actually not a bad argument. Um, mm -hmm. If everybody decides something is of value, it, it doesn't matter what it is. If everybody decides napkins yeah. are a store of value, they become a store. It, all value is ascribed, right? So if the whole yeah. world says napkins have value, they have value. Um, so if the whole world, you know, if everybody continues to believe in Bitcoin, then it will have value and it could be this, you know, digital form of collateral that, you know, can sit on a balance sheet and provide liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, however, I think that by design, and I think if you read Satoshi's first paper and you read his thinking on the subject, it is by design political. Mm -hmm. It is designed to take away some of the power from government issued money, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if it continues to survive and it continues to thrive, like any government, it gets bigger and bigger. It's like a ratchet, it gets bigger and mm -hmm. bigger and bigger. Very few people in history ever give away power. There's been a few, but it's it's extremely rare. Right. And, and governments typically don't do it. And I would be surprised if the Bitcoin community, or however you want to describe that, um, 
would want to give away powers that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think as it, the longer it's around, well, I think it, the longer it stays around, the more legitimate it becomes, right? The, re mm. the reason it's sticking around is because it has legitimacy. And I think the longer it sticks around, um, then I think the bigger threat it, come, it becomes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it takes four months, maybe it takes 40 years, I don't know. But if, if, if Bitcoin sticks around and continues to grow, it will eventually come into conflict with the state. Now, I yeah. don't know if that happens at a price of 40,000 or a price of 400,000 or a price of 4 million, but it's somewhere along that scale, it becomes inherently in conflict with the state monopoly. Yep. And I just believe that people underestimate the lengths to which governments will go to keep their power. Yeah. I'm not saying that they will win, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I'm saying there will be a battle. Yeah. And and I, I I am not willing to go all in on the bet that Bitcoin wins. Right. I'm fine owning some. I, I, right. I have nothing against people that own some. I think it's I think it's I think it's I, I I have a little bit of trouble with the maximalists who encourage other people to sell everything they have and go mm -hmm. borrow money and buy Bitcoin. Yeah. I think it's yeah, I think it's wholly uh. irresponsible for a number of reasons. But um you know, everybody gets to make their own decisions as, 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 as an independent, uh, you know, Austrian thinking libertarian, it's your yeah. money. You can do whatever you want. Yes. But if you're asking my opinion, I, I don't think it's wise. Yeah, I, I agree. And would like to go on record. I always try to just tell people to invest in knowledge, like go and study. That, that's where you get all of the benefits. And then as, as you've put in the work to structure a worldview, then make your portfolio construction consistent with that. I'm not here to tell people to go put all their money in Bitcoin. I mean, yeah. I have chosen to put, to hold all of my savings in Bitcoin. That's what's a rational decision for me. That may not be for you. So please, you know, all the disclaimers. All the disclaimers. Yeah. <laughs> so what, uh, just to press that last question a little bit further. Yeah. What does it look like if they try to lock up Bitcoin? Does this mean, what does that even mean? Well, first of all, well, I mean, may, I, may, may, maybe, you know, maybe it's as simple as they lock up you and me and other people who speak positively mm -hmm. of it or whoever does. Now I know a lot of people will say, you know, Oh, we'll, we'll just fight it. Well, I mean, again, history shows that most people don't fight it. Most people don't rise up against the government. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Occasionally things get bad enough that they revolt. And even a, a lot of times the revolts get put down. Mm -hmm. right? yep. But occasionally a revolution succeeds. They think of all the revolutions that you can name. You know, the, only, the reason you can name them is because they're they the succeeded. ones that succeeded. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's not that many of them. Right. There's a few, but there's Otherwise, not that many of them. It was an uprising, right? A revolution right. if it succeeds, an uprising if it fails. Enough. Exactly. And so the reality is, is, is if you tell most people that if they do something, they're going to go to jail, they're not, most people aren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. Now there's some that are, but most of them aren't. And so, and that's just, if you tell them they're going to go to jail, you know, yeah. if you, you, you start putting more threats on top of it, you know, and, you know, the beatings, you start beating a few people and you yeah. do it on television. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm being, I'm being silly, but I'm also being serious. Like, yeah, actually, yeah. you know, you know, again, today, if the whole, if, if, if enough people in the United States right now decided that we didn't like 
the form of government that we have, the, the power lies with the people yes. because the people always outnumber the government. Right. But the government has the bigger guns, right? Yeah. And so if, if, if everybody, if you get big enough numbers to push back against the guns, you can overrun the guns. Mm. But the reality is most people back away. Most people don't run towards the guns. Most people run away from guns, right? right? And I mean, I'm using yeah. a very kind of a silly analogy, but that's, yeah. that's what history tells you. I think a lot of people like to envision themselves as William Wallace. But there's only a few William Wallaces that actually exist, right? Yeah. Very few people are willing to go to the mat under those circumstances. Right. Um, and, you know, if, if everybody was willing, if everybody was William Wallace's, there wouldn't be countries. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we would have our, we would have our libertarian utopian society. Yeah. Right. right. Um, but the fact is, is most people, you know, most people don't do that. Yeah. No, excellent points. Um, it's fine. I love the way you describe that, that if it's dangerous, governments want to lock it up. And I, I agree with you completely. And I guess in, in my mind, I think they're going to try to lock it up on their balance sheet. You know, just it becomes a game of accumulation. And then that's what, you know, it's almost like um, states take our power. Why, 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 why couldn't they just buy all the Bitcoin, put it on their balance sheet and then never use it just like they did with gold? Well, they can, but what is the market cap of Bitcoin at that point? But but if they but if they just if they're going to print the dollars for it, what do they, what do they care? I mean, if they're trying to buy from <laughs> a certain hand, no, I agree with you. But yeah. it's like yeah. that's sort of self that's destroying the monopoly in the I mean, process. Be, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I'm being kind of facetious here, but yeah. I guess my point is is um, you know I I don't I don't know what they will do or how they will do it. There's probably a lot more people, a lot more knowledgeable than me that can give you a number of reasons what they could do, and there's probably just as many people tell you why it would fail. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I just am con- I just don't think there's not there if Bitcoin is going to be as successful as many people think it is, it is going to involve a battle, and yeah. I believe that when that battle comes, the the state will be able to inflict a lot of pain. Right. Perhaps the state will lose. I don't think the state will lose, but perhaps they will. Gotcha. Um, and so I, I, that's kind of my intention of always when I talk about Bitcoin is just to say, hey, this is not a guaranteed outcome. Yeah. I know the Bitcoin maximalists will tell you that this is a guaranteed inevitable outcome. Right. I don't think that that is the case. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, nothing is inevitable. And the, the exciting thing about it is it's turned this Keynesian debate between you know, Austrian and Keynesian economics into a market test. So I guess we'll yeah, see, a little bit. Yeah. you know, yeah. which is interesting. Um, yeah. Brent, this has been an awesome discussion. I'm really glad you got to come on. I'd love to have you back on actually, because I feel like sure. we could probably just yeah. talk about this stuff forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm always happy to, I'm always happy to talk. If I got yeah. time, I'm happy to talk. <laughs> this, this, I mean, macro just keeps getting more interesting with tech, like tech and macro colliding yeah. is just, create this i can't not get my mind around it all so it's super exciting yep. to talk to someone like yourself do you want to just maybe let people know where they can find you um sure sure so um i have a website all that's on there is my address and my phone number and my email so try not to blow it up too much but um, if, if people have questions uh, just go to SantiagoCapital.com. i'm happy to try to answer any emails i try to get to them all i don't always succeed so please don't be offended if i don't get back to you right away and you can send me a second email if I don't respond to the first one. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can search for me under Santiago Capital. 
my handle is Santiago AU Fund. And then if you go to YouTube and type in, you know, my name and Santiago Capital, you'll get a number of links. And so, and like I said, I'm happy to come back and talk with you anytime. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. We'll throw that in the show notes. And honestly, man, great discussion. Just uh, all the gears are turning. Like I've got this yeah, new yeah. to look at the world through Graber a little <laughs> bit. So I've got more homework. Yeah, to do. Yeah. All right. Good fun. stuff, man. All right. All right. Thanks, Brent. Have a good one. See you. Bye. Bye.